When I was younger, I was getting high on my identity of being a victim and I got high on drugs. And then I got sober and I switched over to getting high on this new identity of this sober person, this person who's a composer and who helps people and all that. I was still, it was just a transference of ego. Hey everybody, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and Jamie Carpenter is my guest today. And um, our claim to fame collectively is that we live in Ojai. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And and we became friends. So we're kind of happy to do this. I actually uh, did one with uh, Jamie who does podcasts. Love is the author is wonderful podcast that he does. Thank you. As well as... You've done soundtracks, music. I didn't know so much about that, except suddenly he's became my drummer when we do, when I'd sing Kirtan at our community events. Yeah, uh, definitely. I'm starting to take liberties because we've been playing long enough. I'm starting to take artistic yeah, liberties. Yeah. Sudden, <laughs> suddenly I've got Art Blakey. Blakey <laughs> oh, wow. That's a huge compliment. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, really. That's yeah. a name from the past. And, uh And you also, you know, you do... Uh, consulting with mm. people to help get them straightened out on a day-to-day basis, shall we say? <laughs> right? Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. It's been a long yeah. road. It's, uh, you know, it's that you and I are even friends is, uh, is extraordinary from my path because, uh, right after I took uh, a huge plunge into non-identity about 10 years ago, um, Wait, what was that? You did what? I took a huge... Is that something you took? No. <laughs> For the, we won this, it. Yeah, this time it wasn't. It was It was all, I think, it was all of what I'd taken my whole life. What I'd accumulated was an identity. I had been uh, uh, somebody who in childhood struggled. Um, struggled emotionally. Mm. Struggled with... Uh, I had sexual abuse in my childhood. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, and, and these things, I, I felt like a victim you know, of my own story. And, uh, I, I decided at one point in my youth that I was going to be anyone other than me because it hurt too much to be me. Mm-hmm. And so I started lying about everything really in life. I yeah. think it was my first drug was lying. Yeah. That's what I say. Yeah. This is not uncommon, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. This is to one degree or another. Yeah. Yeah. I found well, that this continue. This, yeah. What happened? Well, I found that this, this Jamie character, um, there was a lot of things that happened in my life that no one came and sort of said, Hey, this is what's going on. I just had to really figure it out for myself. Like most people do. They don't have somebody there to kind of like necessarily take accountability for everything that happens along the way. And, Mm. and so I just embodied that and I became this pain body and I moved through life lying and tearing through my own life. And I ran away from home when I was 17 and uh, had, I was living in Sacramento at the time and just became this, uh, this street kid uh, who with a guitar. And wow. yeah, and I, I started playing with other homeless kids and we started like a homeless band. Really? <laughs> yeah. And like, we started you were playing. literally sleeping on the streets or in literally shelter? sleeping on the streets at 17. I, I was, wow. I left 11th grade and, um, and headed for the streets. And my mother was like, why are you doing this? I don't understand. And I, I know now where I am now at 46 years old, what I was running towards. 
You know, and I was a seeker, much like you, when you got exposure to Ramdas and when you got mm. exposure to Maharaji eventually, it's yeah. just, you know, all of life started to make sense, you know, and, and at this point it didn't make sense why a kid was choosing to be on the street, but there was a lot that had happened to me that I hadn't talked about, you know, and I was, mm. uh, I so your re- mother was not aware of, of all of what was going on. She was, but she was also trying to provide for herself and her line of work has been, um, Jewelry. It's uh, she's she's a Native American uh, jewelry uh, collector and and dealer, and uh, has been my whole life. And uh, vintage also. And so she was on the road, and you know I was a teenager, and and so uh, I just thought I could do it better on my own. And and my mother ran away from home actually when she was my age, and so no. Yeah, there's talk, a bit of a talk cons- about inherited karma. Ooh. No kidding. Well, and also wow. my mother had sexual abuse in her in her childhood, and this mm. is from different people, and uh, even different, you know, um, sides of the family. It was just it found me in the same way that it found her, you know. Um, and I think that broke her heart a bit to know that that had happened, and mm. and so anyway. Well, everybody is doing their best, you know, and and I think that that's what I was doing at the time, but. You know, at 17, when I was playing with those musicians, those those kids, those homeless kids, it was summertime around, and it was warm enough to sleep on the street. But I wandered, and and I started playing um, uh, coffee shops, and and with this band, this homeless band, and uh, <laughs> this famous uh, uh, punk rock sort of godfather um, named Kevin Seconds. There's a band called Seven Seconds. And he, he hosted one of these open mics and he took a shine to me and always gave me a good slot. And it was like, I was getting mentorship, you know, from, I didn't know it then, but I was getting mentorship and it really felt good to be in someone's care who knew more than me, Mm. you know, and this is the kind of seeking I think that I've been looking for my whole life is, you know, to find sources of wisdom that go beyond my pain body and my mind. Mm. And it's been a long series of those, including... Ending up with Ramdas, Maharaji, Raghu, and all the rest. You know what? Uh, what was the uh, fulcrum that allowed you to understand there was a path? So I got uh, to be free. Yeah, I I I got lucky. I uh, I burned everything to the ground at twenty six. Oh, really? I burned it all to the ground. I was homeless on Skid Row for a second time in my life. I had kind of, after getting 26. off of the, 26, this is 10 what years later. between 17 and 26? I kind of got off the streets. I put a little bit of a life together. I started working regular jobs. I formed a band, a legit band, not a homeless band, but the homeless band was my start, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I started living life and I actually got on, my band got on that 70s show and Third Rock from the Sun. We were the prom band on a couple episodes and and that was huge for us and you know, but I was always chasing this identity of being a musician. And mm. I'd been doing that my whole life since very young. And I was just like a diehard. And I was like, this is what I'm doing, what I'm here to do. And it's probably what I'm chasing out here on the streets all these times. And after a little bit of success in between 17 and 26 with music, I started to really get into this identity and it was killing me. And I didn't know that. But this pain body that was holding all these secrets and all the stuff that it that had happened to me and everything. Um, have you ever been in a psychedelic trip where you can open your eyes and you still you can still see the world and go, oh, okay, good, it's still here. And then you close your eyes again and you're in this yeah, thing. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, 
I uh, I wasn't able to do that anymore. The outsides looked like the insides, just broken. <laughs> and so I, I headed downtown to, to Skid Row and at 26 because no one else would have me. My mother even had moved away from me and told, not given me her address. She was just like, I'm the last person in your life. And, uh, and, and, uh, I, I can't even, I can't even look at you. And with tears in her eyes, she said goodbye to me as I got in a cab and drove downtown to Skid Row. And I lived down there for a little bit. And this is the second time now, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm going in and out of a porta potty down there and I'm sitting there with other families and trying to get into a shelter when I could. And, you know, these were my people though. You know, at this time, we were all business. We were in the business of doing the same thing, escaping our feelings, escaping the hurt identity. And so I felt kind of a kinship being down there, even though I was, I stood out like a sore thumb, you know? And, uh, at one point I was sitting in the gutter, 26, I'm looking and there's this family next to me. This woman is sitting in the gutter with me, but she's braiding her kid's hair. And this is just accepted, you know, and I'm looking at this and I hear this voice in my head and it says, you're not supposed to be here. Keep going. And it wasn't like you're better than all this. It was just like, this isn't the stop, man. And so I, I got up and I walked somewhere else and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, there was this van that had pulled in front of me. And there was these feet that were loaded in to get into the van. And this was a stop. I didn't know it, but there was this stop there that, that uh, took men to the state-funded treatment center like once a month that stops there and picks up people. And the driver came out. As I woke up from the sidewalk, there's a, a rat ran by me also. <laughs> I remember that <laughs> just to, to tell the story a little further. And this is fifth and Crocker or seventh and San Julian. If you're familiar with downtown and, and, um, downtown LA. Oh, LA. Yeah. So, so, uh, the guy says, do you want to go to treatment? And I was sitting in my boxers at this point. I didn't have anything left and it was a shitty pair of boxers. <laughs> It was just <laughs> like they were, they were white, but they were so used that they were almost see-through <laughs> or something. And, uh, I, um, I, I said, are there girls there? And I legit asked that question in my boxers with nothing else going on, you know? And he said, no, but there's another way of life. And I sat honestly weighing my options at this point, nowhere else to go, nothing, but still like what's in it for me. You know, still lost. But anyway, I, I got in the van almost naked and went to that center and uh, started doing traditional recovery. And that was like my first spiritual experience, I think, as an adult was, uh, was actually in a rehab van driving to a doctor's appointment the first week that I was there, just feeling terrible. I'd been using meth, um, heroin, uh, methadone. Um, I... Uh, and for years, but I was vegetarian <laughs> and smoking <laughs> organic cigarettes. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. Anyway, so my first spiritual experience was driving to this doctor's visit. And what the experience was, was my mother always talked about a natural high in life. She taught me that God is love when I was younger. She said, God is love. And, and so uh, she said, and there's a natural high that exists in the world. She used to tell me that while I'm like loaded, you know, not getting it. 
But uh, what happened was we're in the van and, and the radio went on. I hadn't heard music in a while. And, and I heard, you know, it was like classic rock or something. They were playing U2 and this is 2003. They're playing U2 like Joshua Tree. And I'm hearing where the streets have no name. And it's like so powerful because the power of music could hit me because it didn't have, I didn't have all these layers uh, in between me and the music. It was just raw and visceral. And, and I think that was my first legit spiritual experience. Wow. The, wow. Next, the next one was when I went to an AA meeting. And I, I'd never been, and this was at the center, at the, at the rehab center. And we're talking, this is where it's a state funded place. So it's where people go. If you're either homeless or you wanted, you get the opportunity to do the rest of your prison stay in rehab because it was a drug related charge. Yeah. So it's a 500 guys in the mountains in like cabins with like bunk beds and there's 60 yeah. bunks to a room. And so it's, that's the scene up there. And it's a lot of prison talk and you have to get up early in the morning and make your bed cost hospital corners and uh, yes, you know, and all that. And, uh, and I'm just feeling terrible. I'm kicking all of the years of drugs and the pain body person is still there. And somebody says, come on, you're coming with me. And that little thing there, come on, you're coming with me. I've followed that thing for years now that, Hey, c- come here. You, you might like this. You know, and that was my first one. I went with him just feeling terrible, just kicking all his drugs. And, and he, and uh, I walked into this AA meeting and I didn't know that's what it was. And everybody was laughing, but they weren't laughing at me. They were laughing at something that the speaker was saying that I used to do, like steal. Everybody was laughing about this. Oh my God. They were laughing because they related. You know, and so, and I heard the laughter about this thing that I felt so much shame over in my whole life. These, these, uh, things that I used to do that I thought I was the only one and nobody understood me. It was like being terminally unique, they call it, you know, where you're just, <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> you're just so unique that no one and terminally nothing can reach unique. you. Yes. Oh, that's good. I'm write that down for my yeah. memoir. Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> Um, so, oh, boy. Yeah. but that was it. The laughter around this particular issue that I had shame around, it changed my life. I, it competed with the drug kick. I felt better for a second and I was like, mm. wow, whatever that is. And what I know now it was, is the collective. It's just mm. like in, in, um, you know, native American tribes, like the council that would go on where they would pass a talking piece and no one would talk specifically about the issue, but somehow within the collective, the truth would arise. Mm. And I think that's what happened mm. in AA for me. Yeah. Mm. And then I met a guy uh, about a year into recovery and he got up at the podium in AA and he shared the same thing. He said, I, I wandered downtown 20 years ago and I w- had no plan on going to rehab and I took some pills and I didn't even know what I took and I started to wobble and this guy in a white van started going, waving towards me. And, and he said, and it had been a long time since anyone had invited me anywhere. So I went and it was rehab. He woke up from a blackout and he was in the same place that I was in, but 20 years earlier, the same story. He got me meditating with uh, A Course in Miracles to start. Oh, really? Yeah. He was my first AA sponsor and I'm not a part of AA anymore, but he this early on. That's what that was my deal, and and he was somebody who I needed somebody to show me how to be a human now, 
like how to be, a, I say a man because I identify as a man. And so, and I always have. And so I, I wanted to know how to use the, the equipment because I don't always take in and, and I had a big heart, but I couldn't access it. And so this man, you know, through A Course in Miracles and through his mentorship, he started getting me meditating. And I would meditate. I worked at Amoeba Music in Hollywood. It was one of my first music jobs. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, sober jobs. I saw you there. (laughs) Yeah, you probably did. And as I was learning to meditate, I didn't know that you're supposed to seek like a serene environment. I was so new to it that I didn't know that like it was helpful to go in a place where there's no distraction or something. I think that's what most people do. Um, so I just went out to Sunset Boulevard and just sat on the side of the building with all the foot traffic and all the cars going by honking. And I practiced meditation out there, not knowing any better, not knowing how this would be really serving me later, because it's not about finding a pristine still space. It's about noticing if there is one, you know, and I know that now. Um, but it started me there with like just all this distraction so I could really hear where it's quiet in me. That's you know? perfect. You got yes. the perfect meditation lesson. And then that, that guy, he went, he felt like he had about 10 years left of his life. He was feeling my, my mentor felt like, you know, I probably got about 10 years left. I got hep C in my liver. And he goes like, I really want to go to Tibet. I've never been to Tibet. He was reading the Tibetan book of the dead at the time. And he hadn't read it since college in the seventies. And he was like, I really want to see it. I just want to go. I don't know if I want to be a Buddhist or what, but I I want to go there. And through a series of events, he was able to get into Tibet, snuck in this six foot six tall white man somehow was snuck beyond the borders and risked, uh, you know, people risked their lives to get him in to meet a teacher. And he met his, uh, his teacher in a cave and lived with him for a month and then started bringing home what he could to me. And that started my relationship with Vajrayana Buddhism. Yeah. Who was that? His name was Vic Anderson and he was right about the 10 years. Oh, sorry. The Lama? No, yeah, no, that's nice to hear. It's good. I hate to say I'm Lama. not biased against white people. But yeah, who's the Lama? Yeah, so Lama Karwong was his name. Karwong. And, yes, okay. and Lama Karwong was one of the people who got rounded up in uh, early the early occupation of Tibet and uh, tortured and uh, kept in prison for years. And the story of Lama Karwong is that, you know, that... He was one of the people who would cry when he was being beaten, but he wasn't crying because of his wounds. He was crying because of the karma that the, the inflictors were going to have to suffer from beating him. And he would cry and he would echo through the whole prison, they said, but it's, it had this cry and it made people feel joyous in some weird way because, because it, was, it was purely motivated. Mm. So, so he had that kind of effect on the prison. It was 20 years after, you know, uh, the occupation that he, he, they finally decided to release him, but they thought they'd throw him out in a snowstorm that was coming, you know, just and, and throw him out in the blizzard and then go collect the body in the morning. So they released him. And this is like in the late eighties, I think they released him. And then, and, uh, they went out in the morning and he was sitting in the Lotus position with melted snow, like grass forming around Tumo. him. It's steep. That's right. S- steam Tumo. coming off his body. And they had never seen anything like it. So they bowed and they released him. But since then he had hid up in this cave and my teacher got access to him and started bringing me back what he could, you know? 
Really? Oh, that's quite a great story. Is he still alive? No. So he passed in 2015 and, uh-huh. and, um, and he was right. You know, his life was coming to an end and he, he helped rebuild monasteries. He just saw the Tibetan people and saw how joyous they were and how little they had and how it's a land of vegetation where you can't even grow vegetation. And it's a land of vegetarians who can't even be vegetarian. It's a land of Tibetan Buddhists who can't practice Tibetan Buddhism in their own country. He saw this and how joyful that they were with holes in their walls of their buildings and their rubble of monasteries still, you know, still doing the practices. So he wanted to change that. So he, he started a nonprofit and started sneaking back cash into Tibet in prayer wheels, gigantic prayer wheels. Yeah. Cause he had to sneak it in, but he did a lot in his life and, uh, definitely a bit of the spark from him transfer over to me. Mm. I got, I got into addiction and mental health treatment work. I, I, that was what I've done for the last like 15, 16 years. So I've been kind of the mystic in drug and alcohol and, uh, mental health centers. And uh, I call myself a professional Ramdas, and I joked around with you the other day about that because <laughs> because uh, I give talks and lectures. I work with people individually. I work with the dying. I work with uh, the living. I work with married people, and I, I work at births. But um, I'm, I've just become uh, somebody who uh, at at a certain point, with all this great story that I've told you, at a certain point, all of that was killing me. Still, the musician. Oh the sober guy, all these new identities that most people strive to get to. And I had, and I started to get music jobs and, and, and uh, work as a composer in this sobriety and build a name for myself. But that's really what was strangling me was this name and this identity and all these preferences around, you know, this life story. I had had a great life story. I mean, people could just rest from there and go, you survived Skid Row, you, you got married, you, you have a career now. All that stuff was still too tight. I was going, who am I outside of all of this even? All of this, because this is hurting me. It's hurting me to keep up this become a name. It's the, all the stuff that Ram Dass talked about, becoming nobody. Uh, I don't know if you know this story, but it is so apropos and everybody out there listening or watching right now, you probably have heard this story because it's a recent thing that I heard in the last you know year or so. And I can't stop. It keeps reverberating in me at different times when I, 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 I'm able to see clearly all of my self self selfish motivation and attachment. Yes, basically in terms of operating day to day, manipulating, doing everything we can. Well, I got to create the best career, right? I've got to be the best therapist. I got I got to make a name for myself here. Yes, I family to support. You know all of the normal stuff. Yeah. Anyhow, one day. Krishna Das was in Maui. We were all in Maui with Ram Das when he was alive. And we used to go to the beach on a Monday, a certain beach. And he loved to go swimming, you know, where he'd become free of his wheelchair. Oh, joy, oh, joy. And, yeah, oh, joy, oh, joy. And then one day Krishna Das got there late or something, but Ram Das was alone in his car 
<laughs> looking completely glum. Oh. Used to look like that. Krishna said, what, what's up? What's wrong? Yeah. yeah. Or, or not, not what's wrong. What's up? Yeah. He looked at him. He said, I'm a fake and you're a fake. Holy shit. And Krishna was like, yeah, but we're real fakes. <laughs> Krishna Das always okay. with the great saves in these. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's got, yeah. <laughs> but just think about it. The yeah. only thing that, like in your case, talking about this and say, I'm still going through because I've, you know, I'm attached to all of the roles and identities. Yes. And so what, what's really going on? Yeah. Is really what we're talking about. We're right. talking about you're doing all of these wonderful things that are helping others and so on. Yeah. And uh and yet you feel like a fake. Yeah. Yeah. If because of you know the self-interested motivation, all of the stuff that makes us feel like a piece of shit, basically, right? It's so true. And then then you just think of what he said, but we're real fakes. What yes. does that mean? It means it's okay to be human. Right. And we understand that in the deepest part of ourselves, we do give a shit. Yes, And that's we do right. care for other people. Yeah. And we do want mudita, you know, others yeah. to be, ha- you know, their happiness is our happiness. We mm. do want all of these things. Yes. We are heartful. Yeah. But we're as stuck as everybody else in, in any moment. That we uh, self-identify with our thoughts, our stories, yeah. our roles, our identities, and all. So I thought it was a, it's a beautiful little story. I didn't know that story, and I thought I would have been one of the people counted in one of the, you know, I thought I would have been one of the people counted in on the people who know the story. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but what I found is I was getting high early on on being a victim when I was in, younger, I was getting high on my identity of being a victim and I got high on drugs. And then I got yeah. sober and I switched over to getting high on this new identity of this sober person, this person who's a composer and who helps people and all that. I was still, it was just a transference of ego. It was yeah. now into a more industrious yeah. and a more socially accepted yeah, exactly. domain. It's beautiful. It had yeah. all of the character. Oh, of yeah. This wonderful new spiritual path. And exactly. We are, boy, we are. Or we something. Are light and love. That's you know? right. That's yeah. right. But so, it's you know it's the the big thing around uh, you know not dealing with the tough stuff that's inside ourselves. It's spiritual bypasses is, is is a bypass in itself. Just, that's right. But yeah, well, I know we're a spiritual bypass, you know, and then you're just continue it in another way. Yeah. And again, so Jack Cornfield does the greatest bit on this. You know, it's okay. We're human. It's yeah. okay. Uh, Just watch yourself. Look at yourself. You got this thing in the middle of your head that, and you stuff shit into it and it, and, <laughs> and it gets digested by something. I don't yes. know what. And then have you ever watched yourself having sex? Oh my God. That's really ridiculous. Yeah. You I don't know, understand so. how people could have sex on LSD. I, I never understood that. And it was like it's such one a, of the greatest uh, things that ever happened to me. The first time I took acid, very first. Oh, uh, really? Um, yeah. Wow, Absolutely. that's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, with someone I loved, though, that, was, that oh, made sure. a difference. In that moment. does make a difference. Yeah. So Absolutely. in this transference, so, so in this transference, it was still ego, and I was I realized that, and I realized also that like I was like there, 
um, my life had gotten small again. As big as it had gotten, my outlook was small because I felt like uh, basically I was I was suffocated. I was suffocated by identity. And I, my mother had always said, like I said, God is love. And I thought at this moment of difficulty, while this new identity now and all the demands of that are steering me away from perhaps what I'm truly here for, you know, is what it felt like. I suspected that maybe there was another me outside of even my musicianship and my musicianhood. You know, I thought maybe there's somebody else in there, you know, and so I did something really radical. I decided that every day I was going to wake up and just surrender completely and fully. And I was interested in Yogananda at this point and Ramdas was on the way. He was coming up. But uh, at the time I had gone to SRF and I was mm -hmm. feeling really charged by Yogananda and uh, took the kids and, you know, and they were getting meditation lessons and it was really sweet. But I, I just thought, okay, I'm going to take a big risk and just leave all my identities behind and I'm going to do whatever shows up because this is where my life's gotten to. It's the skid row of my mind this time. It's not the <laughs> skid row in LA. It's the one here where I'm just like down and out going, this isn't it. Just like the original voice that said it when I was down there. Now it's saying it again. You're not supposed to be here. There's something else. Keep moving. And so I surrendered every morning and I thought if there's a God, then it's going to save me. And it's going to come to my aid and it's going to show me something about myself or maybe it doesn't exist. And I'm finally going to, I'm finally going to say that if it doesn't come to me now. And so what happened was I meditate every morning and I would say this, I would say, take my life, make of it what you will show me where to go, what to say when I get there, not my way, your way. Every day I said that earnestly, like with a burning thing in me. And I wasn't going to be the version of me I'd been. I quit music. I wouldn't even listen to it. I just, I wanted something pure. I wanted to know what else there was. And it happened to be at a time where my family was struggling financially. And so, so it was like, you know, my wife used to say, Hey, listen, meditation and sitting still is not going to get the job done. But it did. And it's now, it's now, it's now a whole life, you know, I mean, I teach people to meditate and as a primary, that's like mainly what I do. Music is just something I used to do. But anyway, I did this for a year and, um, and then I wandered into a treatment center to visit a friend and the owners of this treatment center saw that surrender in my eyes and they said, we want you here. And I started working at this center in Malibu that was new. And uh, they made me the spiritual director of the place. And I started showing them how to surrender just like I did. And this is a crucial moment for people in sobriety or when they're dealing with mental health is because the identity is actually the thing that's causing all the pain. It's these stories. It's these misidentifications that we have with ourselves that are kind of actually the real burden here, you know, and that we're carrying. And they need recontextualization. And they need what you said early on. You said something about like how... Uh, um, I forget what it was, but it, it, they basically need to see the goodness in their story and how they care. See, I think addiction, I think it's signaling something actually more of what's going right than what's going wrong because it's saying there's something wrong in the family. 
there's something wrong right now with me and and the addiction and all of the the signs of that are bringing attention to this that we societally go like oh you're sick we got to put you away but really this is an us problem you know the addiction is signaling there's something wrong in humanity and something wrong in this this particular family that needs addressing so that's what i tell addicts when i meet them is like you're more of the signal of something changing in your family you know this isn't you're not the mistake you know, you're not the black sheep. You're the one that's probably born to change it all. Mm. But don't let that mm. be a heavy trip, you know? Yeah. Your mother said God is love. Yeah. From an early age. It's, father was missing? I hate to go through this, like, Mm-mm. therapeutic question. No, they just split up. And they were both musicians. And mm-hmm. uh, my father was Catholic, raised, but he was more, he was into kind of everything. He was open to Eastern um, read a lot of Buddhist books. And my mother was Christian science, actually, three generations. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's through those generations. The generational thing seems really powerful in your case because the immediate circumstances weren't, although there was that trauma, sexual yeah. trauma. Yeah. And that's there's no otherwise on that one. That, that can really uh, go a long way to helping destroy a psyche of somebody who, you know, I mean, it takes a lot of work to come through that. Yeah, what we uh, have to do within that is see the person as not having invented the molestation. You know, and that's what mm-hmm. I had to do is like, I mm-hmm. saw him as doing something that was done most likely to him. Like, yeah, you know, that's he, the way it is. And that's the way it is. And so it freed him up. And I just saw him as another one of me. And, and, and so I think that's, that's the only way really to find forgiveness is to see how this could happen. The backstory. Mm-hmm. That's why these these Marvel movies with backstories on the villains are actually so helpful. It's starting to show show a sign that we should look into why these villains show up in life. But it really points to, I think we all have that generational karma yeah, uh, in one way or the other that we are dealing with that's handed down to, you know, my, my mind got exploded in a huge blast of dynamite. My famous story where uh, my guru, Anim Karoli Baba, made me give my father acid. What? <laughs> made me. He didn't this make me. <laughs> you don't know this story. No. You, haven't wor- you haven't read this book. You would love the book about all of our stories going back to India with uh, called Love Everyone. Oh, that book? Yeah, everybody out there, that's a great book because it tells all of our stories of following Ramdas back to India and how what happened in our whole trip over there and meeting this incredible being. So yeah. anyhow, I one thing I did, although my father and I, this is again, I'm so sorry. I have to put a little caveat here. Do it. I'm so sorry, everybody. Jamie doesn't know this story, so I want to <laughs> tell him. You've heard me tell I'm it a so billion times. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> Anyhow, I'll make it brief. Basically, we weren't, we didn't get along. I was a, a rebellious teenager and he was a tyrant mm. from the Second World War, PTSD'd out of his mind. Yeah. So, but I'd still wrote to him when I went to India. My brother was with me, my future wife. And I still wrote and said, boy, I'm, this is incredible. I cannot believe what I ended up here. I didn't say anything beyond this is incredible. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. believe. I actually still have letters, the, the letters uh, from that time. Yeah. 
So one day he said, well, I'm on my way. I'll be there in a couple of weeks. I go, what? No. No. <laughs> I can't have you here. Yeah. And he, so he ended up coming. We get, it was, uh, we went to see Maharaji in Brindavan, which is Krishna's town. It's not you know, a few hours south of Delhi. Wow. And so we're, you know, there's a, it's a walled camp, a compound outside is a beautiful statue of Hanuman. And so we're, you know, we're all tossed our shoes off and running to see him. And uh, it, by the way, that was like if you saw, you know, you never had haagen and you saw a haagen store or, yeah, uh, t- you know, it would be, oh, God. And you had your first thing and you were addicted immediately. <sighs> oh, totally. Right? Yes. So that's kind of what it was. So we're really looking forward to getting at that haagen Yeah. <laughs> um, but dad, he didn't know from nothing. He had lace shoes on. So he was trying to take care of, you know, getting his shoes off. And he didn't know what was going on. So he wasn't rushing to get in there. Anyhow, I got in there first. And Maharaji said, your father's here, right? <laughs> like I knew, you know, he, My this goodness. was just, this was a nothing demonstration of, I know everything. There's nothing to yeah. talk about past, present, future karma. Yeah. Anyhow, my father gets in there and he talks about our family and his, uh, my mother, who he had divorced uh, many years before that. Well, not that many, like uh, six, seven years before that. Yeah. And how she's a, just a, she's a good person. He oh. kept saying to my father. And then he looked at me and said, you only love your father because he gives you money, right? Wow. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I Really? <laughs> I mumbled and fumbled. And then he says, did you give him the medicine? And I said, yes, he had a cold. I, I gave him some Tylenol. And he, and he went, night. The yogi medicine Ramdas gave me. <laughs> oh, my God. And then I went, acid? My, and my father went, LSD? Oh, <laughs> and Maharaji turned back to me and said, uh, take care of your father while he's in India and meet me in two weeks in this other city. Wow. Actually, with uh, another devotee was there and he used to stay there. Yeah. So we went to Benares. You know, Benares is where people go to die for the last thousands of years. There's been burning bodies on the banks. And we found a houseboat about, I don't know, 80 yards from where they burn the bodies constantly 24-7. Like, you know, you go out and you're brushing your teeth in the river, right, in the morning and you get up. Yeah. And then you see pieces of bodies because they didn't get enough wood to burn the whole bodies floating by. And, and you know, a dolphins, they have dolphins there that eat the bodies. I mean, yeah, it's wow! insane. Wow, the dolphins <laughs> eat the bodies. Yeah, yeah, they feed off of them. Dog. I have a great picture of a dog. Anyhow, that's terrible. I shouldn't go there because no, it's scary. No, but the, I thought of something too. I thought of the movie The Cove and it was like, I think something about a dolphin slaughter or something like that. And this is like in reverse. Now the dolphins yeah. get revenge in this movie. Yeah, right. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, dolphins. Yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm walking down the street. Friend comes along. You got any acid? Yep, I got one hit. Gives me the acid. My father actually takes it. Wow. Now, what, Which, you know, what's the impetus there? Like, what for him to take it? I mean, is is he enthralled by Maharaji's request, or is that just something well, he, he got? You know, I mean, he got blown away. He was told Maharaji said, "You got on a plane, it landed in Frankfurt. You sat next to an Indian businessman, and then blah blah, you know, yeah, and yeah, nobody yeah, yeah. could know this okay. shit." And so he w- yeah. he was punched in the face, basically. We gotcha. all got our minds yep. broken. Baseball, it was like a baseball bat, <laughs> you know. 
He, it was, yeah, that's yeah. why, you know, these crazy people who ended up there, you know, were, uh, as I said to some group the other day, we, we were ba- basically miscreants that he assembled and sure. straightened out and that we needed yeah. to have that, that thing right in front of us for some reason. And, and, and many of us, of course, brought this back, you know, the, the legacy back. Of course. Anyhow, yeah. he took the acid. He had a death trip because it's all death down there. We're right down the street from the burning, you know, where they burn the bodies 24-7. We walked in. There was a dead donkey on the banks. And then we walked in towards town and in the alleys there. And there was a a dead person. They were people, you know, people were throwing money by the body to get enough wood to burn it properly. Wow. Right? So yeah. he, he he thought he wasn't afraid to die. Well, he got straightened out very quickly on this on this acid trip Whoa. about that. And that uh and then we went back to see Maharaji, who never said a word about it except the Ganji's water, very pure. Yeah, he, yeah. He didn't Whoa. speak like that. He was yeah. also a translator, <laughs> but uh <laughs> that's my interpretation. And uh so he uh then told him other stuff actually around a horse farm. And he, my father had saved a horse's life. He wouldn't give up on it. The vet told him to, you know, uh, it had to be euthanized and he wouldn't do it. And he saved, he saved his leg. Wow. Applying actually green clay, which is a great thing, by the way. Yeah. Um, And uh, anyhow, he related the whole story. And then my father went, boom, that was the end of him. He fell down on the floor. And from that moment on, he, he was, my whole family ended up in India, my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, and all their partners. That's incredible. My mother. And, and the whole course of our family history. Yeah. Did we still have to, like, you know, Maharaji said at one point, I've done everything for you, but I leave you the mind. So that's what you're talking about and what I'm talking about. In terms yeah. Of you, you get on the path, you understand intuitively and you have intuitive trust for that place inside that you have recognized. Yeah. And then that's why you look out at what roles and identities and you get caught and you're human. What are you going to do? You know, it's okay. They pass. And you, you, that trust and intuition is all about the revealing of that. Yes. That true, we, that good heart, good heartedness that we all absolutely basically have. Yeah. And it just gets covered up by the story that we tell each other. So yep. in my case, it was radical dynamite yeah. uh, for my father that allowed us then to become friends and to have a relationship for the rest of our life. It was unbelievable. That's incredible. Well, see, and this, you were talking about generational trauma earlier, and mm-hmm. this is a purification of generational trauma, if I've ever heard one. I mean, your father getting zapped in that way. And then, and then, yeah, Yeah. the whole family comes over. And, and I think that it can happen in a lifetime. I believe that we could be the ones born to stop it. It could all end with us. Absolutely. And that's been the case with me because my kids went through a divorce just like I did around the same age, but myself and my ex-wife did it differently than my parents did. Yeah. And we learned from it and we stayed true to that. Above everything else, we, we did what we said we were going to do for them and we created a difference in their life. And so uh, they got healed up from that. And, and, and mm. I think it all goes down the line also. I think when we get free from the generational trauma, it spreads down the line. All those who have been in bondage, I feel like, get free as far back as we go. 
you know? And so that's a compelling notion um, that I tell people, I really believe that and I've seen it. And uh, my kids now are, are, uh, you know, my mother had been abused sexually when she was six to 12 and mine happened around 12. My kids now are both teenagers and it's over. It's done. It all ended with me and my mother. You know, we Mm. dealt with this stuff Mm. and we faced it. And now you have this, um, ability to measure it by your own children and how free they are, you know? Oh, wow. That's so great. I think the, my, my secret was it, I, I looked back and I thought in all these missed connections, who would it have been nice to have there? What would they have said? How would they have treated me in all these difficult moments in my life? where I was sidelined and, and some, something had happened and it was without explanation and it was without apology and I embodied it and thought that it was me. At all those moments, who would it have been nice to have there? And so I just made a kind of a list of like all the attributes that they would have and I became that person mm-hmm. for other people. So I've become what I needed in the world, you know, yeah. for other Perfect. people. Perfect. And that's the deal. And I did, I've done that since in, in that treatment center. I, uh, I worked there for a few years and did sweat lodges and co-facilitated sweat lodges with, a uh, with a native American elder and, uh, and, uh, got that education, which I found to be very much like the Tibetan, um, uh, the, the culture and some of the practices and the rituals are very similar. And, um, and then I opened my own center, which was called Good Heart. And it's in Santa Barbara. You said good-heartedness a minute ago, and I thought that was fun because uh, the center in Santa Barbara is called Good Heart Recovery, and Lacey, my partner, and I, and uh, and we did it with uh, this other couple, um, opened a center modeled after the time that I missed, the time that you were alive in the 60s when the counterculture was booming. And I always felt like I missed that era of happenings and, you know, and, st- and things like that. So we created a center that felt kind of like a happening, mm, yeah, you know, cool. it was great. That's it was really cool. just a place to find yourself. Yeah. I love the word. Actually, we're going to, uh, under my hat, of uh, uh, director of Love Server Member Foundation, we're going to put on a Ramdas uh, course this oh, yeah? spring in 2023. We are right now. Uh, the Yoga of Heartfulness. Mm. Nice. Because that's beautiful. really, you know, that's his emblem. Yes. Sharing heartfulness. I mean, love, compassion. You know, that that's Ramdas compassion. So I have this thing. So here's some, I don't know, did I... Did I show you this book? <gasps> yeah, no, I, 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 I know this book. I haven't read it yet, and I love Shambhala. And on my podcast, I'm interviewing Sam Burkles this Sunday, uh, the founder mm-hmm. of Shambhala, um, mm-hmm. on the Love Is the Author podcast. But I, I love everything they put out, and I'm a huge Chogum Trumpa reader. Do you? Wait, do you know Pema? You know who Pema Trojan is? I'm a huge Pema fan, but I've never met her. I'm just no, friends. Just, just her books. Oh, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, yeah. she's okay, highly this quotable. Is one of the, yeah, one of the best books I've read in quite some time because her level of clarity translating the teachings, Tibetan teachings, into, you know, 
into the be here now world. Yeah. Wow. Is really great. So I wanted to just read this one thing because now, you know, the book is called how we live is how we die. And the whole thing is about, it's not just thinking of the things that you can do to center yourself into a place so that you, and, uh, you will pass through the bardos in a much more open-hearted, relaxed, uh, non-fearful way, basically. I mean, that's, Beautiful. A, that's a huge generalization, but, but these things apply for us. These are, this is, this thing I'm going to read is phenomenal advice for us just living our lives. I don't care if you're, you know, 18 years old. Right. And you just, just realize, oh, there is a way to be free and happy. Oh, that's right. You know, you took acid or something, you know, mushroom, whatever it is, you read a book, you heard a piece of music, <laughs> uh, like you and I, Yeah, that happened for us. Um, yeah. So here it is. To the degree that our heart is, has opened in life, to that degree, it'll, it will open in death. Mm. In this way, when we move through the bardo of dying and beyond, we will automatically think of others. This is the whole key to everything, living, going through the bardo of dying. Yeah. Instead of our heart contracting in the bardo, it will expand. We may get captured by fear and start to withdraw into ourselves. But then, because of our former practice, and there's the key word, practice, because mm -hmm. it does take that, yeah. we'll naturally pull ourselves out of a tailspin. We'll look around to see who is there with us, and we'll wonder what they are going through. Since a positive state of mind is so important that death and in the bardos, this open-heartedness towards others will make for a peaceful and positive journey. It will provide the perfect causes and conditions for awakening at any point during the in-between stage between death and birth. Unlike the warmth of kindness, mm. the warmth of devotion to a teacher can be surprisingly difficult for many of us even to consider, let alone embrace. For some, the mere word, quote-unquote, devotion can be unsettling particularly when connected with spiritual teachers. This is because in modern times, too many teachers have actually harmed their students and betrayed their trust. Yeah. And yet, and this is it right here. It's all right here. Mm -hmm. And yet, believe me, devotion to a, an authentic teacher who only cares for your benefit is magical. To quote Dzogchen Panlap Rinpoche, mm -hmm. it is a quote-unquote, a key, then unlocks the doorway to the most profound experiences of mind. Mm. And Thank you talked, and we were just talking, you talked a bunch about, you know, a very transforming thing, you know, for the, you, which was surrender. The bardo and in I, the living, yes. The, 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 yep. the bardo of the living, you know, uh, applying that for the bardo right now of the in-betweens, yep. yeah, of life, yeah, for yeah. sure. Exactly. And that's exactly the point. But, we had a mentor, K.K. Shaw. Yes. And uh, he, he came to some of the retreats in Maui with Ram Dass. He was Ram Dass's closest spiritual brother. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was the first translator for Ram Dass and, the, and where Maharaji sent Ram Dass to go be with the family, Indian fans, where a lot of what we 
present at these retreats that we do, you know, what we did with Ramdas for many years and that we do now, where he's there in spirit, of course, hmm. uh, is, a, is about this, this connectivity extending family mm-hmm. to a much larger uh, purview. Yes. And he taught us, he said, you don't know anything about surrender, you <laughs> Westerners. Yeah. Because you think there's a, some, an act of you doing something. Oh, right. <laughs> and uh, he said, in India, the, the word for it in, in Hindi is um, sharanagat. It's S-H-A-R-A-N-G-A-T. Sharanagat. Sharanagat. Uh-huh. And he gave a talk, and we have this, uh, maybe it's a transcription, I'm not quite sure. We're going to include it in this course because it's so important. Yeah. It gets down to one of the examples he gets. First of all, he said it's the last thing that a an spiritual aspirant, it's the last thing that happens oh. because there's no one doing it. So you get to a point where you're no longer the doer and that's when it can happen. Exactly. And, I, I and believe he that. Said, he said, just think of yourself. You're 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 in the, you're in the desert and there's no water. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> what do you do you, then? Um, right. Yeah. And there's the kind of surrender that is not any personal effort to surrender. Yeah. There's nothing else to do. You get to that's why it's at the very end. Anyway, and, it's a fantastic uh, talk. It's something you personally, never mind we're doing this podcast. Yeah. I think you and everybody, including myself, to read it again or listen to it again. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll get, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll get a uh, transcript. I would love that. I would love that. And, and uh, you know, this this uh, thing that you're talking about is, it's, uh, well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of uh, KK. And, and oh, I yeah. know he followed Ram Dass right away. It seemed like he, he went, didn't, didn't he die just after? Yes, it was, yes. Yeah, just literally weeks. In fact, only two weeks ago was the third anniversary Oh yeah, uh, of his death. Yeah, I, I was very close to him. I spent so much time with him. We're, I'm working on a movie, uh, a doc around him right Amazing. now. Amazing. Because we, we've kind of, we have something for each of our mentors. Yeah. There was three main mentors, Sidima being a saint in her own right. So I yes. don't even think of her that way. I mean, that was my, my mother. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, about Dada Mukherjee, who wrote the greatest book. If you want to know what Maharaji was like, it's called yeah. By His Grace. Okay. That's And then uh, uh, K.C. Tuari, we did this movie, Brilliant Disguise, which is just out now on, on you know Amazon and Apple, Google, blah, blah. Didn't I it? wrote you about it right after watching yeah, it. Yeah, it was remember, just amazing. Yeah. I was so moved by his devotion. And that's what yeah. I keep learning about devotion, like like what was said earlier by you is that... Uh, is that by Pema in in her description? Yeah. Is that yeah. devotion? My my teacher Lama Lanang Rinpoche, he's a Vajrayana teacher, and uh, and he tells me he's like, <laughs> it's hard not to do an impression of him um, because I'm getting good at it. But he goes, <laughs> he goes, when you when you have devotion, you don't you're not devoted towards me. He's like, you devoted for you. He's like, this devotion grows in you. It doesn't go to me. You just use me as the path to bring on devotion in your own body. Where else do you feel it? 
you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, he tells me that, and and he says, he says, I love everybody. And much like Ramdas had a picture of Donald Trump on his altar, he goes, my teacher goes, even Donald Trump. And then he goes, what, what, Lama, you like Donald Trump? He does like this, <laughs> he does this Jim Gaffigan kind of like yeah, 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 audience yeah. member thing. And yeah. then he goes, yes, he's like, hate. He's like, hate, if I hate, I have to feel the hate. Why yeah. would I want to hate anybody? Yeah. And that's yeah. so powerful, you know? Yeah. And it's definitely uh, something that came late stages, but um, but I remember there was this moment where, and it was right around the time of that first kirtan with you, where um, I, my father had a hospitalization, and there was yeah. moments where it, it didn't look like he was going to make it, and it was very uh, uh, devastating. And I'm I'm a a spiritual mentor. And so I see like 15 people a week and I, I do a podcast and, and, um, and I'm just in love with everything and everyone. I'm just truly, a, a, a especially romantic about Vajrayana Buddhism, but not exclusively. I'm in love with everything. And so I'm wherever I go, I learn about people and I tell them if I see them doing something that's amazing that 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 every day gets overlooked. I I tell them if I see kindness. And so I'm uh I'm out there doing all of that, you know, all the time. And so I I there's a lot of output being this guy. And at this point where my father was going through that and I'm like wondering if he's going to make it and it's so heavy and I've, I'm raising kids also. And so uh, there was this weekend where my kids weren't going to be there and all this is happening and it's so heavy and I'm looking like I'm going to get my first rest in a while on this weekend. And what happened was a stray hive of bees found a home in our attic on that weekend. And all these bees were just flooding into our house, coming through the vents. After weeks of just going through, just having all this output, helping people with their own traumas, you know, nonstop. And uh, and putting out a podcast and dealing with my own father's illness. Now the bees in the house. And there was, I've, you know, I don't... Um, when ants get in the house or whatever it is, I go to every length to like... I'm, uh, I, I like sh- uh, shuffle a, c- a sheet of paper underneath the ants. Uh, to try and- yes, uh, yes, exactly. So I'm just trying to save Not lives. Killing. So what do you do when, when the bees are in your house now? And so what my partner and I were doing on our Saturday was just taking one bee at a time outside while I'm dealing with the world's heaviness and there was nowhere to go. There was no one to blame this on. There was nothing to do other than this. And I found myself in that very claustrophobic space that ended up being one of the ego's final disappointments, you know, as it's been put, you know, something happened in that moment where I saw that I'm still in this act, even though all this is going on, I'm still in this act of saving the bees. It's the only thing to do. There's nothing else to do. And in that moment, it was so powerful to watch myself still care, you know, still care this much. And I think we're all caring all the time and our caring goes wild and it takes us into health concerns, you know, where we start uh, caring about ourselves so much, we start eating too much or we uh, don't exercise or we uh, take too many drugs or, but it's all care under there. 
we're actually trying to do the best for ourselves. If we knew that our core thought was actually care, our core beginning, and it goes wild after that. It does all this stuff that, mm. you, you know? Yeah, here's a mantra. Yeah. We're going to end with this mantra. Beautiful. It's a beautiful mantra. Every thought, every thought, and everything comes from a thought. That's right. The mantra is, and that too. And that too. That's the first That's mantra Ramdas came back with uh, the first time he was in India when he got the quote-unquote map of consciousness. Mm. And that too. It's okay. This and also you happens. follow it. Yeah. 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 I'm attached still to caring. I'm not. I really do care. I'm not. It's still just another thought. That's it's right. Like, I got I to gotta pee now. I got to right. eat. Got to go to my car. Where's my keys? It's yeah. all, and that too. It's well, I want to mantra before we end. I want to yeah. tell you that right at that time, I think it was the day before I went to go sit with you for the first time. I got invited to your place, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a kirtan, and I met you there. Well, I mean, we had met a few times before, but here I'm at your house, and you and I end up sitting next to each other, and and. uh you know, the whole time my father was in the hospital, there was an image that I was working with. And it was he and I playing catch. He and I were playing catch back and forth. And, I, you know, that was a childhood memory. And it was something that we got to do a few years ago. And it returned me to that. And so it was this sweet feeling, you know. And it was like I wanted to see my dad in his perfection and not concentrate on the illness, you know. And so I, I thought about he and I playing catch. And, uh, and then I went and sat with you. After the bees and after all that stuff has calmed down, I'm sitting next to you and, uh, you, and I said something to you and you go, huh, you know, you know, you just, you just reminded me of a dream I had last night of Ramdas. Do you remember this dream? No, tell me. Okay. You said. Refresh me. And this is. I remember I had this dream. But I can't remember what it was. Okay, okay. That's terrible. So, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it was for me, Raghu. Uh-huh. It was for me. The dream was for me, and I'll tell you why. I'll remember it when you tell me. You will. Um, you said, uh, yeah, it was the strangest thing. You're like, Ram Dass and I were playing catch. Oh, right. You said, you said, and I said, and I'm like, almost looked around conspiratorially, like, is anybody else okay? He's about to tell me a fresh Ramdas story. For one, it was fresh off the press, you know. And I've heard so many stories come through you about Ramdas, but this was in the flesh, and it had happened the night before. Yeah. And you said we were playing catch, and I said, "Have you ever played catch with Ramdas?" Or and you're like, "No." It's like he wasn't a sports fan, and I, I like some sports, but not baseball, you know. And you were like, "It was the strangest thing," and I didn't tell you in that moment. But that was like, you know, the morning, that morning before I came to sit with you, I sat in meditation and Maharaji said, I'm going to hide in you today and let's see if they find you. Let's see if they find me in you is what Mm -hmm. I heard. And then Mm -hmm. you told me this dream and it was like, it was just meant for me to know that everything was going to be okay. And it is. My father's doing great. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a. What a wonderful ending story to the podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Jamie Carpenter. Thanks, Ryan. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's just a that's a manifestation of the truth of yeah. of, of us. We're taken care of. We yeah. are really taken care of. 
yes, it is good to uh, have awareness of that taking care of Ness, however it manifests. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, it's just absolutely re- rely on on the beauty of that reality. Well, that's is, my message. Is so, yeah. It's is, love is the author. Love is the author. Yeah, there you go. That's it's, yeah, it's the whole go. thing. It's my be here yeah. now. And that's what yeah, I live yeah, by. Exactly. It's great. Uh, yeah. And uh, check them out. Love is the author. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, yeah. I believe the people here doing the show notes will create a link so that you can check up on Jamie and some of the wonderful guests that he has. And boy, Thanks, it's been buddy. Fun as it as it always is. We we just sit around. We do we do the same thing whenever we get together. Yeah, it's that's just the real thing. Satsang. It's it's phenomenal. And uh, yeah, man, I'm happy to to have you here. Thanks, Raghu. Mind rolling, everybody. Thank you. This is mind rolling. Go to beherenownetwork.com. Bye, everyone. And tune in to everything that we offer there, from Jack Cornfield to Alan Watts and. <laughs> I will uh, see you next week again. Thanks, Jim. Okay, thanks.